<laughs> hey, you know what? Today isn't a very important day. It's, it's, it's today that is alive with hope. It's today that we look forward to being surprised by goodness. And then every week moving forward, even into the new year, that God would move in power and goodness because today the Broncos have their first game. And it's exciting. <laughs> a day full of hope, a day, yes, yes, so. And, and, and funny, you saw some of the band people, they were wearing Green Bay jerseys. I found them backstage and I hid them from them and they wore them to, yeah. So there's gonna, there's gonna be some, you'll never see them again, I'll say that much, okay? Well, hey, let's get in. You know, we are in the uh, series on the Gospel of John, and we have been taking this each week going through, and we're at John 12 right now, and so we've had a lot of great stuff, but today's going to be a little different. I'm just going to start off by saying this week, I received a very disturbing email, and that's, and that's not strange. I mean, over the past year, I wake up each and every morning, and every inbox or message box I have on every single platform I'm on is full of something, some, somebody telling me the truth or the truth. And I, I'll, I'll get two videos in one day, and one video has a bunch of doctors on this side telling me something, and the next video has other doctors telling me the opposite thing. And so I get a lot of videos through this season, more videos than I've ever gotten in my life. And, and it, it's, it's kind of fun stuff um, to, to see all the sides. But, but this email... This email this week was different, and it alarmed me more than any others I'd read. It was, the local it was the latest statistics on churches and the state of Christianity from the Barna Research Group. And, and I'll show you to listen to the opening statement, okay? Today, 176 million Americans claim to be Christians. That's 69% of our population. I mean, if, that, if that's true, then our nation it, it does claim to be a majority a Christian nation. But the next sentence is what hit me. Yet only 9% of those identifying as Christians actually possessed a biblical worldview, believing the Bible to be accurate and reliable among other convictions. So 69% of our nation claims to be Christian, yet only 9% of those who claim to be Christians Christian possess a biblical worldview. Now, what does that mean? Your worldview is your intellectual, emotional, and spiritual decision-making filter. Your worldview is how you see yourself, how you see the world, and how you interact and operate with the world around you. And while 51%, 51% of U.S. adults claimed they had a biblical worldview, Barna found that the actual percentage was only 9%. And here's a few of the beliefs that Barna discovered that self-identifying Christians in America believe. 72% argue that humans are basically good. Now, that sounds great, but the Bible is very clear. Listen, if, if humans are good, we don't need a good shepherd. If, if, if humans are good, then we don't need a savior at all. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Here's another one. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you have. And these are, Christian, these are American Christians filling this out. Which faith you, what, what faith you choose isn't as important than that you just have one. Pick one and follow that. And, and Jesus has a lot to say about that as well. 64% say that all religions and all faiths are equal. And so 64% of self-identified American Christians believe Islam, Hinduism, nature worship, Buddhism, etc., etc., are all equal to Jesus Christ. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way to heaven. Now, this is just classic. This has been around for a long time. It's very co common that salvation is actually based on the good works that I do. If I do enough good things, then I get to heaven, I'm good enough for, for God. 
Salvation, in this instance, is earned through what you do. It's earned through good works. If that's true, there's zero need for Jesus to die. We don't need grace because we can just work our way into heaven. Here's some more. Here's some other one. This is going to ruffle some feathers here in, uh, in our Colorado culture. Uh, 57% of American Christians believe that karma is real. That karma is an all-knowing all spiritual force. It's all-knowing and all-seeing. That would make it divine. And it keeps tabs on the humans and punishes those or blesses those based on their good works or bad works. Uh, listen, if that karma is nothing more than a divine Santa Claus. It sees when you're sleeping, it knows when you're away, and it gives you coal or toys based on your, your actions. But I want to be very clear, karma and the Bible are incompatible. Karma being the judge of your life is in opposition to having a loving God who sees you through the eyes of grace. And there's no grace in karma. I'm thankful we don't get what we deserve. Listen, so a worldview where Jesus and karma are both alive and real, that's not biblical. This is not. So why do I tell you all this? And why have I already ruffled some of your feathers, either joining us today or, or here in the building? Because, Orchard, it seems as though the majority, the vast majority of Americans claiming to be Christians are believing and behaving as people who do not follow the example of Jesus Christ. And that was alarming to me. Barna, he, he summed it up like this. Two out of three Americans think of themselves as a Christian. But the, and the majority still think that Christianity is kind of about the Bible. But there's a big gap between what self-identified Christians believe the Bible may teach and what it actually teaches. There's a disconnect there. We have a spiritual pandemic of people claiming to be Christian with their mouths, yet denying Christ with their words their beliefs, and their actions. And here's the bottom line I want to address today. There's a huge, vast difference between claiming to be a Christian and actually being a Jesus follower. And we may discuss some things today. We may already have discussed some things today that have ruffled some of our secular worldviews in cultural Christian, Christianity. And in fact, some of you may be wrestling with what we said about good deeds or karma or all religions or all that stuff. But we're discussing today, we're going to be discussing today in John 12, something that is biblical, that comes from the mouth of Jesus, that is capital T to truth. It's not relative to how we feel. It's not relative to the experiences that we want. We're going to be talking about the truth of Jesus that transcends our feelings. And here's the deal. I want to give you a tool to engage when it comes to truth. This is a tool. You can use it today's message, but also as you move forward, use this tool. Whenever you're confronted with a truth that disagrees with your opinion or that doesn't feel good, you have two choices. You can justify your feelings or you can adjust to the truth. When you hear something difficult and you don't like the way it feels, you can justify your feelings and move away from the truth or you can adjust to the truth and get on and stand on that. But we adjust or we justify. And, and today, I'm gonna, you're going to have this option. Because I think for many of us, as we see Jesus give a sermon here, that's pretty clear. It's quite a challenge. This is going to be a different kind of sermon than I off, often give. But Jesus gives us a different kind of sermon here in John 12. Jesus is discussing today the crisis that that email brings up. The crisis we're facing here with American Christianity. It's, it asks the question, are you actually following Jesus? Or are you just saying you're a Christian? Because there's a big difference, as we've learned. 
With that said, let's turn to John 12, 20. Jesus has just entered in on a donkey into Jerusalem. They've said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And now he's walking through the town. It says, now there were some Greeks who were among those who went up to worship at the festival. It's Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and with a crest. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. The disciples are passing along this message from Jesus from these Greeks. And so now we see there's, remember, there's, there's millions of pilgrims here in town. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's pilgrims, and they all want to see or find or witness Jesus do something. Like some want him dead, some want to follow him, but some are just there. We've heard of this Jesus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's done all these things. Where is he? What's he going to do? Maybe we'll see him do something cool. Everyone wants to see him. Now, so Jesus gets this request that there are people here that want to see him. And he gives an answer, very Jesus-like, that, that is very different. Let's see what he says. He replied to the quest, can they come see you? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what Jesus says here is very important. And if you've been tracking with us through John, you've heard us talk about when Jesus says, the hour or my hour. He says it over 20 times in the book of John. He refers to my hour. It's usually in reference when he's talking to his mom or his friends or disciples or the crowd. And he says, my hour has not yet come. You see, the hour is a specific time. It's a certain time that Jesus knew was coming. And he's always said, my hour has not yet come. And here, right in this moment, he says, the hour is now. The hour has come for the son of man, me, to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Can you imagine being his disciple and hear, hearing this? Like you've heard him refer to himself repeatedly as the Son of Man. You know he's talking about himself. And you've been traveling with him for three years. And finally, he says, hey guys, it's time that I'm glorified. Like, like we knew he was Messiah. We've seen him do all these amazing things. But he's been this humble and poor and traveling teacher for three years. Like there's not been a lot of glory yet, Jesus. But... If the hour has come for him to be glorified, ooh, you see, the disciples that believe Jesus is going to be crowned and be sitting on a throne, and they're right, but they didn't know that the crown was made of thorns and that the throne was on the other side of the cross. They're right, but they missed it. You see, Jesus will be glorified. His hour has come, but between him and the glory of heaven, he has to go through pain, the gauntlet of torture, humility, and the cross. His hour has come. And there is glory in what he has to go through before the glory of heaven on the other side. When Jesus talks about the hour, he talks about it with the heaviness that others miss around him. He says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And they're probably excited, but there was probably a heaviness in his heart knowing what the hour actually meant for him. And it's right now, his hour is here, and Jesus uses this opportunity in John 12 at the end to give his final public sermon. This is the last few sentences of Jesus' public ministry. After this, he speaks only to his followers until he's put on stage in front of the crowds chanting, crucify him. This is the final taste of Jesus' public ministry. He has these Greeks, these people, everyone wants to see and hear from him. Jesus is about to give his last public sermon. What do you think it's going to be? I mean, surely it's love one another, right? Right? Or, or you know, do good. And what, if it's your last public sermon, what do you say? Jesus takes this opportunity and turn with me to John 12, 24. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If it, fall, if it does not, unless, if it doesn't fall and die, it produces nothing. It just remains a seed. 
You see, first and foremost, Jesus is talking about himself here. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to die. And, in an, and on the other side of that is a new way of living for all of us, for anyone who would, who would follow him. If he keeps his life, well, he, he keeps a single life. But if he lays down that life, he gives it up for uncounted many. There's something powerful about a seed. I have a seed right here. You can't really see it, but trust me. And that's what's so interesting about a seed is they're so small, but they're full of so much potential. A seed is a, t- a small thing, but it's all potential. Did you know that there, every seed, like, like let's take a, a pine tree, a pine seed. In every seed of that is, is an entire forest. In every apple seed is an entire orchard. The potential from one seed could grow an orchard. It's vast. But a seed that never falls to the ground, a seed that never dies, that just remains intact, safe and uncracked, never produces anything. It just remains a single seed. But a seed that, that falls in the ground and, and dies produces many seeds, which can lead to a harvest. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He was talking about himself and the way that he had to give up his life to provide life for, for many. But he, now he makes it not just about how he's going to die, but he starts to talk about how we live. He says this, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. (laughs) So heavy stuff, isn't it? Jesus is using some interesting wordplay to levy this stark challenge. Those who love their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. Love and hate? Hate my life? Love my life? What's he saying here? I mean, let's, let's put it in context. He's talking about a seed dying. A seed has a purpose. A seed has a calling. And its calling is, isn't to live a seed life of comfort and happiness. Like if a seed lived for comfort and happiness, it would never want to fall down to the ground and be buried and cracked and die. A seed's calling is to, draw, is to die so that it can truly live in the way it was intended. A seed by nature is called to the purpose of dying so new growth can happen. But if, if this seed loves its little seed life, and if it clings to its seed life and its succeed existence, it will never fulfill its destiny. It will never fulfill its purpose. It will never fulfill its calling. Literally, it is the seed dying to its little seed life that allows it to grow into the destiny it was created for. Jesus previously has used the word love and hate in reference to family. Like he says, hate your family. But he doesn't want you to go out there and hate your family. That transgresses the love God, love people. And is he telling you to love, like to really hate your life? Like to go in your room, turn off the lights, put on the makeup, join a goth band and just write poetry? No, no. He doesn't want you to just hate your life. No, no, there's something so much bigger than this. What he's saying is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to such an extent, to such a level, that all other things pale in comparison. That, 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 that is such a high affection, all affections look like hate. And notice he calls us to hate our life in the world. Not just in general, not to despise, I hate my life, but to hate your life in the world. Hate the life that would be lived according to the world's priorities, pursuits, and pleasures. You see, a seed that fights for its life and never wants to fall and never wants to die will never grow, never sprout, never bud, never produce fruit. And the life, the person who clings to their life in this world will never grow, 
will never bud or sprout or produce the fruit and fulfill the destiny that God has called them to. A seed that prioritizes saving, its little seed life, has prioritized its comfort over calling. Just as a person who prioritizes my self-life has prioritized my comfort and over the calling that God would have for me. A follower of Jesus is called to something. We're called to lay down our, our life, our selfish life in this world, and in doing so, pick up a new life that produces a harvest. Jesus is calling you to a divine priority, putting God above all things in your life. God is calling you to a divine pursuit, to pursue him above all other pursuits in this world. And God is calling you to divine pleasure, finding joy in obedience and saying yes to him over the comforts of this world. You are called to die to the priorities, pursuits, and pleasures of this world. What Jesus is asking us to die to is those priorities, pursuits, and pleasures. Now, what are the priorities of this world? What are they? Here's an easy, one of my favorite illustrations. You may have heard this before. When my daughter was two years old, we were in our, our old house in the living room, and my son Elijah was doing something, and he had all of our attention. He had just built something with Legos, and he was showing us, and Amy and I were both turned to him. And my daughter, Selah, wanted our attention. And, and she, kept, she, she couldn't get it. So finally, she went to the middle of the living room floor, and she just stood there, and she said, Me! 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 And she, we looked over, and like, well, okay. <laughs> the, 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 pri the, the priority of the world is summed up in that little two-year-old girl. Me! Above all things, me, my comfort, my desires, my fixes, me, at work, me, in my marriage, me, in my family, me, in my recreation, me. That's the priority of the world, first and foremost. Other priorities of the world are money, success, and fame. But ultimately, those all scream me. Jesus wants us to die from the me priority, to move from me to he and put him as the first and foremost authority in our life. The place that, that, that I place God's virtues and God's calling above my own vices and my own comforts. In Luke, Jesus talks about seeds again in another place. He says there are four soils. He says there's four soils that the, that the seed can land in, God's word can land in, and each soil represents a person's heart. For those who make for themselves them, their own priority, for those who live by the me way of the world, then they're on the path of the world. It's hard-packed. It's hard-hearted. It's me first. And Jesus said this in Luke 8, 12, those seeds that fall on the hard path and the hard hearts are the ones that hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Their hearts are so hard, the seed cannot penetrate. Me. Me. That's the priorities that God is asking us to die to. But what about the pursuits? What are the pursuits of this world? You see, as humans, first and foremost, if we're honest, and let's just don't elbow anybody else, just be honest with yourself for one second. The pursuits as humans, we, the, the pursuit as a human is often happiness. Overwhelmingly, we see that in our culture and oftentimes in our hearts. I want to be happy. I have people say that God's telling me to get out of this marriage because he wants me to be happy. That God wants me to, God would not want me to be unhappy. 
And I go, God doesn't want you to be like, uh, anyway, anyway, as humans, first and foremost, we love to pursue our own happiness. It comes from that me. And Jesus is calling us to die to the pursuit of personal happiness and instead pursue personal holiness. That we, instead of saying yes to all our vices and fixes and recreations, at some point we would say yes to the way of God. That we would say yes to him. Pursue the nature of God. Pursue the presence of God. Pursue the life that pleases him. The, Luke, or the soil in Luke 8 that, that talks about the world and, and our pursuit of happiness. It's a, pursuit, it's a soil that seems good on the surface. It's happy to receive the seed. But it has hard places in its heart below that there's, it can't be deep growth. You see, when happiness is my pursuit, what happens when God calls me to do something that's hard? When happiness is my goal, what, what about when God calls me to do something that doesn't seem very happy? <laughs> what happens to my faith when, when happiness is my primary concern? People say, you know, I, I, I thought Christianity was fun. It, was, it made, made me happy. I mean, I show up and there was the people and the potlucks and there was the, the fried chicken and the green bean casseroles. That yeah, was a great time. You know, we sang some songs, the whole shebang, but sacrificial living and giving? Preserving a marriage and fighting for it when I'm not happy? Putting God's desires ahead of my own? Well, that doesn't sound like fun to me. That doesn't make me happy. You see, I'll gladly follow as long as it makes me happy, but what happens when Jesus calls us into something hard? What happens to our faith then? Jesus speaks of this in Luke 8. The seed in the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy. Yes, with happiness. This is great. But since they don't have deep roots, that means they have high emotion, low devotion. They believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. A temptation of other happiness. This will make you more happy, perhaps. You see, when happiness is our pursuit, even if we came to Jesus in salvation, we would find ourselves in the coming years Becoming like those people we read about in the email at the beginning. Where we say we're a Christian. But only 9% have a Christian world, a biblical worldview. I have pursued happiness. I'm following happiness instead of following Jesus. You see, the Bible invites us to come and die to our pursuit of personal happiness. And on the other side of that, live in a pursuit of personal holiness and obedience. And to find joy in that. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that like followers of Jesus are just walking around without any happiness. Oh, I'm following Jesus. No, no. It's that my personal happiness is not my God. It's not my pursuit. The final one is pleasures. What about the pleasures in this life? I mean, if we're honest, the, the, the world is an unlimited Vegas buffet of pleasure. It never runs out and it has every flavor that you ever wanted. It's everywhere. And these pleasures are distractions from, from keeping our faith from growing and maturing. In Luke, in the four soils, he mentions this as the fourth soil. And Jesus says when, when, the, when the seed falls and there's thorns or weeds, here's what happens. It fell among the thorns. That stands for those who hear God's word. But as they go on their way, as they live their life and work on their faith, it's choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And they do not mature. They don't grow spiritually. Worries. Is there, is there anything to worry about in this room right now? 
I mean, can you turn on the, you can't turn on the news. You can't throw a rock. You can't open it. You, you, there's worry at every corner, worry and pleasure. And so we have out there, those of us who are pursuing God, that because of all the worry, because of all the pleasure, we are distracted. It's choked out and our faith doesn't grow. And there are those of us who have claimed to be Christians, but our faith has been slowly squeezed over the years by the, the, the love of pleasures of this world. And Jesus calls us to die. Die to our selfish priorities, our selfish pursuits, and our selfish pleasures. And instead, have our priorities and pursuits and pleasure coming from him and for him. He calls us to live a life that prioritizes God's calling, pursues God's presence, and finds pleasure in saying, yes, Lord, I will go. Here I am, send me. It's a strange question that I'm going to turn to. It's a question that we don't often get asked, and it's probably a question we don't ask ourselves. But just humor me for a second. What would it look like in your life? What would it look like if you went all in on your pursuit of God? Like, what would it look like if you made following Jesus your absolute number one priority, no question? How would your life be different? What would be different? What would it look like? What if, what if legitimately you're pursuing his way and finding pleasure in him what if we dropped our, our seedy life, our human, uh, human earthly concerns, dropped our life to the ground and, and let them die, only to see something greater grow on the other side of that? A seed has a purpose, and it's not to protect its life. As long as it does that, it will never fulfill its purpose. You see, we cling to our, our seed life. We don't want to be cracked. We don't want to be broken. We don't want to let our, our, our priorities fall, our pursuits fail. We want to keep it whole. But when we lay our priorities, our pursuits, and our pleasures, our life down at God's feet, we find a new life beyond anything we ever could have imagined. We find our truest destiny, not in getting our best life now or, or by getting ahead as a seed, but by growing fruit for God's kingdom. You see, when a seed's planted and it grows from within us, there's the fruit of the Spirit. There's the fruit of generosity, the fruit of, the fruit of grace towards those who want to cancel you, the fruit of love for those who don't vote like you, the fruit of compassion for those who are hurting in a different way than you, the fruit of peace for those who are living in fear in our current events, the fruit of kindness for those who behave different than you in this pandemic, the fruit of sacrifice for those who need help, the fruit of mentorship for those who are younger on this journey, the fruit of true wisdom and peace in the world. While the culture and the media screams panic and fear, the fruit of peace in the midst of that. You see, when you, when you let your previous life die and you step into this way of living your divine destiny, there is a harvest of peace that you become a resource to the world around you. You provide the fruit of peace to people in a worried world. When a seed dies, it becomes a resource for those around it. Now, now you may be thinking, you know, Daniel, this usually you give us like the, a cool history lesson, and then like a Hebrew word, and then like you crack it open, and oh, you know, and like, let's get, where's that? Like, where's, where's that? And I realized I was praying through this, Jesus didn't want a history lesson today. He wanted us fully in the present, fully in the now, looking at that email, looking at our own worldview, looking at our own hearts to see it, ask the question, am I claiming to be a Christian, or am I following Jesus? Today, I'm not preaching about some ancient location or prophecy. We're talking about a sermon that Jesus preached, his last public sermon. 
His hour is gonna, his hour has come. He's gonna be, he's gonna be glorified, crucified, resurrected. He isn't mincing words. He, he isn't candy coating it. He's saying this as his last public sermon. Listen, you can keep living your life for yourself, but in doing so, you're gonna lose everything. Or, and catch this, or you can die to everything the world tempts you with. You can elevate Jesus above all things in your life. And the life that you let die will be the fertilizer for a life that God's gonna grow up in you that transcends anything you could have done on your own. It's not a fair trade. We get much more in God's kingdom. We get much more when we do this. We wanna live a life worthy of the calling that God has placed on our life. And Jesus is not done. Like he, 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 the, next, the next part he says is the truth. He just drops the hammer here. He says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, that's where my servant will be. The father will honor the one who serves me. He says, listen, listen, guys, this whole thing about a seed dying, about you dying and your life, letting it die. This is how I'm living. This is how I'm dying. This is the path I am on. This is where I am going. And if you claim to be a follower of mine, and then if, if you're a follower of mine, then guess what? Where I end up, who, who should be where, if we're following somebody, should we be where they end up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? I mean, if you're following somebody, when they end up somewhere, you should find yourself there. If you don't, you weren't following them. He says simply, if you're really following me, then where I am, you will be. Which means that if that's true, then 9% of the American Christians are actually living or seeing life the way God intended and called them to. 9%. When they look up, they find themselves where Jesus is. While a lot of us are just giving lip service. And we look up and find we've been following something else. There's a lot of people claiming to be followers of Jesus who when they look up don't see him. And the truth is then they weren't a follower. He says, if you're with me, you'll be where I am. And per perhaps today we pause, we pause, and we look at our beliefs and we look at our behaviors and we ask the honest question. Am I just claiming to be a Christian? Or am I actually a Jesus follower? That's a question that you and the Holy Spirit need to wrestle with, maybe even outside of this room. Am I a Jesus follower? Am I following him into the ways that, that he walked? Because if I'm following Jesus, then where he is, is where I'll be. And what he's doing, I'll be doing. And how he's believing, I'll be believing. And how he's behaving, I'll be behaving. And Jesus says, if you're with me, you'll be where I am. And, but, but if I say I'm with you, Jesus, and I look up and he's not there, the chances are I've been following my priorities, my pursuits, and my pleasures. It's likely if I look up and I'm not, I'm not living the life Jesus would have for me, I'm claiming to be a Christian, it's likely that comfort is my king. It's likely that happiness is where I put my hope. Jesus throughout John has been modeling how, we, how we're to live. He's been showing us. So we can, must take our lifestyle, we must take our decisions and habits and priorities, hold our life up, our beliefs, and say, does it look like Jesus? Do my beliefs resemble what, what God's nature in the Bible? Do, do my biases, do my decisions, the way I live my life, does it, does it look like Jesus? Amen. Am I living as he lived? 
Here's, here's some examples, just a couple short ones. You see, Jesus was compassionate. He was present with those who were hurting. So we must ask ourselves, is there somewhere in my life where I resemble Jesus in that? Am I present with those who are hurting? Am I compassionate with those who are needy? Jesus was firmly against any religious hoop that people would put between him and God. It's another thing Jesus did. So do I resemble Jesus in this way? Or do I hold religious beliefs that say certain people with certain sins need to clean up their act before they can come to church or come to God? Am I putting hoops between Jesus and other people? Ooh, that one, you you better take a shower before you come take a bath, you know? And here's the, here's the truth on that. I ask myself this question because I don't want to be lumped in with the Pharisees. They were notorious for putting hoops in front of certain people with certain sins and certain lifestyles before they could come. But Jesus simply said, I don't know if you know this, he said, come follow me. He said, come follow me. He rebuked those who put any hoops in front or between him and the people. And listen, here's another one. While Jesus welcomed all sinners, he lived a holy life. Do I resemble Jesus in this? Ask her, do I resemble Jesus in how I'm living? Is holiness something I pursue? Do I obey even when I don't want to? Does does my sin, am I even convicted by it anymore? Do I even feel that weight of conviction and calling back to God? Am I pursuing a life of holiness that looks like Jesus? Do I end up where he is? Bottom line, if you're following Jesus, he says you'll be where he is. Jesus laid down comfort. He picked up a cross. He laid down selfishness. He picked up sacrifice. He laid down indifference and lived a life that made a difference. And you, I just want to tell you something, you have the same spiritual DNA inside of you. Messages like this, I always sit there and be convicted or condemned and just think, oh, man, I'm so far off. But I just want to remind you, if you've come to Jesus and the Spirit of God lives within you, you have the spiritual DNA within you to be an overcomer in this life because of what Jesus has done for you. He's called us to this way of living. No one's disqualified from this if in Jesus. There's no sin big enough that, oh, well, sorry. You're going to have to eke out your own thing. No, no, no. Listen, this is why we're on the planet. You want to talk about purpose, you're on this planet to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to to talk to others like Jesus would talk to, to invite like Jesus, to, to live for a divine destiny instead of a religious duty, to live for a calling instead of just looking for comfort, to be a true Jesus follower instead of just a cultural Christian. Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. Listen, my old self, it's been crucified. My old self has died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's time to die to some old ways, old priorities, old pursuits, and old pleasures. Jesus himself said in Luke 9.23, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Give up what? Your own way, your own pursuits and priorities and pleasures. Take up your cross and follow me. I know this is hard, but this, this, this is what, this, this, I don't want that email at the first of the service to be true of us. The final verse in John 12 today is at the end of the chapter. It's verse 42 and 43. And as I read this verse, it troubles me because it, it troubles me because it resembles the American church we talked about. 
I don't want this to be true of us. So, verse 42. Yet there were many among the leaders who believed in Jesus, among the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests. But because the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Right here, for most of us listening, this might be something we need to wrestle with. You see, there were even the religious elites, the Pharisees and priests, who because of all that he's done and and what he was doing, they believed in him. Privately, they may have acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, privately as Savior. Yet they were afraid to do anything or say anything publicly out of being rejected, out of losing reputation. At the end of the day, they loved the praise and acceptance of humanity more than they wanted the praise and acceptance of God. They may have claimed to be Christian, but because of cultural pressure, they did not follow Jesus. And we may claim to be Christian, but because of some cultural pressure on some of the things we talked about at the first of this, ooh, we may choose not to follow Jesus. What we, hear, what we have in those verses right there is a people who have come to believe in Jesus, but loved the world more. And they would not die to their pursuit, their priority, or their pleasures here in this earth. They refused to adjust to the truth. They simply justified why they kept living that way. And you know what? They remained a seed. They protected it. They did it. They didn't fall to the ground and die. They didn't, their life, their their priorities and pursuits and pleasures didn't fall to the ground and die. They were unwilling to make the hard decision. And bottom line, they may have identified with Jesus inwardly, but they could never really follow. And that's exactly like the email we read earlier. People who claim one thing, but live another. In Orchard, I just want this not to be true of us. Today's sermon is from Jesus' final public ministry, the final moments. And, and what does he say at the end of it? What, what is he saying in here? He's saying, will you follow me? It's been a theme throughout. Will you follow me? Will you lay down your worldly priorities, your selfish pursuits and pleasures? Will you die to the ways of this worldly culture so that you can come live based on the calling I have for you. So we can adjust or we can justify. And this is an important distinction because as a church, we want to know God's perspectives, know God's purpose. I don't want us to be in in that group of people who claim to be Christians, but when we look up, we're not where Jesus is. We didn't follow him. You know, one reason we have these, our small groups, our growth groups, our Bible studies is to, as a people, to get involved in places more than just once a week where we're in God's word and getting God's word into us, getting in community, discussing these things and and finding hard truths and adjusting our lives, even if we don't like how it feels sometimes to the true faith of Jesus. When it's not easy, when it's hard, when it's difficult to say yes to him. I would jump on those opportunities and see what God has for you. Here, and here's, what, here's how I feel about this, and I, I hope you resonate with this at some level. Because when I read words like this of Jesus, I, it makes me, inside I just get this fire. I want to live for Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be where he is. And, and it's really hard at times, isn't it? I mean, there are times where I just choose comfort and happiness because it is so easy in this world to choose that over what is hard. But in the end, I can't take anything with me, and you can't either. So I will trade what I cannot keep for for the sake of receiving what I could never earn on my own. I lay down my life on this earth to have let God do whatever he wants with me for a destiny destiny and a calling that I I could never do on my own. 
And here's the hope, we have this hope, and that someday as we live our lives for Jesus and someday whenever we pass, we get to that moment where we meet him face to face and we fall into his arms exhausted from, from all that we have been um, doing for him on this earth. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, my beloved daughter, my beloved son, you did not live for the world, you live for heaven and now come with me. How will you live? How will we live? Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. In Orchard, you've, you, each of you individually has a calling. And no sin has disqualified you. And no past has taken that away from you. Today, you can step into that. He's calling you to a new way of living. And Jesus says, if you're with me, if you're following me, you'll be where I am. That right there, that gets me. That has got me all week. And so during, as we go to communion, to go to communion, take that as an opportunity to sit there with the elements of his sacrifice and just say, and just take a moment and repent. Say, I'm sorry for where my priorities have been me. And forgive me, I repent of where my pursuits have been me. Forgive me of choosing worldly pleasure over you. And I just wanna just say one thing that's important. In a sermon like this, there can be conviction where we're not, we're not living the way God would have us. But be careful of condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is, it takes you away from God. I feel terrible, I feel ashamed, I don't wanna go near him. Conviction is God's spirit calling you in, calling you toward him. Today, feel conviction and come to God, come to Jesus. If you have failings, bring that to him. And then ask him, am I a cultural Christian? or I'm a follower of you. Ask him that. And before we, before we go into communion, we're gonna sing a song after that called The Blessing. It's a song that says Jesus is for you. It's from scripture. And he loves you and he's for you. And I wanted to, we wanted to end on this after this sermon because the truth is we can have a sermon like this and go, oh my gosh, I'm so off. But I want you to be remembered that there is a blessing he calls you into. There is a love he has for you. He has favor for you. He's working on behalf of you. He's working in your life in places you don't know and you don't see. And so as you step into this calling and step out of the life you've had, know you, that he's, he is cheering you on, welcoming you into your, into your calling and into your purpose. So let's take communion and then may we worship Jesus and thank him for his favor and his sacrifice. Amen.